And then most of the period will be silent practice and whatever, using whatever subject is, feels right for you tonight. So if you would just take a posture where you feel relaxed and comfortable for about half an hour. It's helpful if the spine is upright and you're sitting on the floor if the hips are higher than the knees that's sometimes helpful also and then you can allow the eyes to gently close Again, by taking a few longer, slower breaths, deep into the belly, letting the awareness gently settle down into the body. A sense of kind attention the experience of this body relaxing the mind relaxing the head face softening the jaw, allowing a sense of release to flow down into the neck. Across the tops of the shoulders. down through the arms into the palms of the hands Gentle awareness in the chest. Descending down into the belly, 
kidneys. Releasing into the sitting bones. Feeling the contact and support of the earth beneath us. spacious and accepting attention, moving through the legs, all the way down to the feet. Resting in the experience of the whole body. Allowing the different sensations to arise, be known, and pass. The sensations of sitting are always in the present moment. And we can always return to them when the mind wanders into thoughts. If the sensations of breathing are presenting themselves to your attention, it can be very helpful to use that as an anchor into the present moment.
just hanging like a tree. Rooted to the earth, grounded. And allowing our experience to move through it like the wind. The rising and falling of the breath. A sound. A thought. A sensation in the body. Returning again and again to rest in the body, in the present.
from 7.30 to 9 p.m. is the first class of a six-week series, Introduction to Meditation, taught by Gail Fronstall. And the same day, September 18th, from 5.30 to 7, is the first class of a six-week series um, entitled Introduction to the Suttas, a class on uh, the discourses from the Buddha, from the Pali Canons, exploring some of the important teachings and themes of the practice. Tonight we have with us um, Matt McNeil from Oakland, and I'll um, let him um, tell us how he got here. Um, well, it's really a great pleasure and a privilege to be here with you all tonight. Um, I met uh, Gil Fronsdale. Um, he was my teaching assistant, actually, um, in a religious studies course I was taking um, back probably in 93, I believe. And, um, and then I discovered that he was uh, leading some sittings around the area on campus and... Um, and then I guess the, the beginnings of this sangha. And so it's really quite wonderful to see what has happened in uh, about nine, nine years or ten years or, or what. And um, I just feel tremendously inspired by um, the power of community and what, uh, what you all together have created for yourselves. And it's kind of astonishing to hear the, the number of really great events that are going on and um, I've also uh, seen some of the, the literature about the different ways that, um, that Sangha uh, is helping one another, um, kind of providing assistance and services and um, just the, the support of the potlucks and, and everything. So um, it's, it's very inspiring for me to, to see what can happen when people um, uh, come together with uh, this great aspiration for, for peace and kindness. Um, so anyway, it's, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, is, is that the introduction? <laughs> <laughs> well, you missed that you're studying up in Scarlet Well, um, I met Matt just about two minutes before um, <laughs> sitting, so um, I should have been more prepared with the um, formal introduction. But from the bit he told me is that he's been studying with Gail for some time. And yet um, he practices in Oakland? Yes, I live in Oakland, and um, there's a sitting group that meets at my house. And um, I've, for a number of years, I've been doing some work at Spirit Rock with uh, the teen program there and uh, teaching some meditation courses and some day longs. And, um, I've done some other work with, with youth in terms of rites of passage, wilderness experience, things like that. Um, and uh, another interest of mine is, is trying to bring community together, um, especially for those um, for those of us in our 20s and 30s, um, to help us kind of uh, find each other and, and um, feel that support and, and community. So... Um, so it's great to be here tonight, and I just had um, I have a few things to, to share, and then perhaps there'll be um, a few minutes of uh, discussion, and then uh, we'll close uh, the evening with a short another short sitting. Um, so if if anyone feels like it'd be good to, to stand up and move right now, you're you're welcome to. 
if, um, or we can just keep on moving. It's just move as, as you wish. So I've been thinking on the last few days about the the notion of refuge. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Great. Um, especially with uh, kind of the collective reflection that our country has been um, going through this week. and But also in regard to just the experience of being human in, in our own day to daily lives, in our own personal lives, thinking about, well, what is refuge? You know, what, where do I go for refuge? And even further, what is a true refuge? What is a place, a refuge, I tend to think of a place that offers safety, security, um, peace, a safe harbor. And thinking about many of the ways that we attempt to take refuge, that I attempt to take refuge, I've come to see how, come to reflect how sometimes it's not such a safe place after all. So that's one of the theme I'd like to explore tonight is how is it to... And what can we find as a true refuge? Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the fundamental teaching of the Buddhas of the Triple Gem. And this is one formulation of a true refuge. The Triple, the triple Gem or Jewel referring to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The way I understand these terms, there's many different interpretations and understandings, but I like to think of the Buddha not only as the historical person, the prince who, through very diligent effort, completely freed himself from suffering through great practice, but also as the quality of awareness, of knowing. In fact, the Buddha, the word Buddha means uh, the one who knows. And further, in addition to the sense of knowing, I, I sense uh, Buddha as a quality of heart, a quality of wisdom, of peace. And the Dhamma, or the Dharma, is historically or traditionally, in the narrowest sense, referring to the teachings, the discourses of the Buddha. But and on a broader sense, it can be thought of as the way things work, the natural order of the universe. And a refuge in the, in the Dhamma, in that sense, can be a trust in the unfolding, the lawful unfolding. And then, of course, the Sangha, in the narrowest historical sense, it was referring to the monks and the nuns who practiced. But I think in our day and age, it's very clear what a great support and refuge the entire community of people who practice with sincerity can be. There's another formulation 
of the Buddhist teachings that I that I found particularly relevant when I'm looking for a place of refuge. The Buddhist teachings are often uh, the similes often given that they're like a bird, and that there are two wings to the bird that that both must be present to fly to enlightenment, to liberation. And those are wisdom and compassion. And both are in equal proportions required. The the first of of these wings, wisdom, again, I like to think of it as an awareness, a quality of knowing, the sense of Buddha. And I'd like to share a poem that I feel is relevant. It's by Wendell Berry. And I've been reflecting on this poem in the last few days, especially as I think about those times when things seem to be falling apart, not only kind of out in the world with the great difficulties that are arising, but again, also in my own life. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. To me, that's a really inspiring and lovely description of the experience of coming to rest in a place of awareness, of knowing. It's a refuge that's not dependent on the external conditions, which we are quite aware are so unstable, they're so unreliable, In fact, of course, that's another one of the Buddha's most central teachings, is the teaching of impermanence. Mm -hmm. That no matter how solid something may appear to be, or how much we place our faith on an external condition, or an institution, or a standard of living, or our health, that all of that is, is subject to change. And it's unreliable. But this quality of awareness is something that really cannot be shaken or cannot be taken away from us. And it's always available to settle back into, to rest, to rest in. When my life is feeling very difficult, very stressful, and I notice there's a lot of confusion Um, or fear, anxiety. This is one of the places that I've learned is a safe haven for me. 
And I usually tend to reflect, or I try to remember to reflect, well, how is it now? Not how might it be in the future, or what am I afraid will possibly happen, but how is it actually right now? And at those times when it's very difficult and, and seemingly overwhelming, it's really essential for me to come back to the most simple way of practice, the most simple kinds of understanding that I can know. You know, what does it feel like underneath my body? Can I feel my feet on the floor? Or can I feel my hands on the steering wheel? Or can I feel the clothes on the body, the temperature of the air? Just an embodied experience. Bringing, bringing the mind back from the very painful uh, um, attempt to understand, figure out, control, manage, resist the world or my given experience. And as I come back to the moment, I've always found that I could actually, I could be with that. I could open to that in some way, to some extent, that it was always possible to bear it in the moment. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho, a great uh, teacher that many of you maybe have heard of, a Westerner who's been a monk for 35 or so years, tells some really wonderful stories about his early training in Thailand back in the 60s. And he he studied with Ajahn Chah, a great teacher to Jack Kornfield and many others. And... Ajahn Chah would have them, the young monks, especially ones who were quite healthy, they would go on very long alms rounds in the morning. And even uh, before sunrise in Thailand, it was very, very hot. And the tradition uh, in that, in the Thai forest uh, flavor of Buddhism, the alms round is it was quite a formal event and exchange, a very beautiful uh, exchange between the the lay community and the monastic community. But anyway, the, the monks would wear all of their robes. And uh, so there's, they're quite covered up and several layers of cloth. And so quite, it's being quite hot and lots of walking. Ajahn Sumedho would um, just come back completely sweating through all of his robes. And he tells some really great stories about the difficulty of trying and how much one's life revolved around trying to maintain one's robes. Because so constantly sweating and then washing, and you only have two sets. And how much of this energy was devoted to this. And this period, you know, this went on for weeks and weeks. And he was getting increasingly upset by the the whole process and, and was thinking this is ridiculous and why don't we just wear um, don't why don't we not wear the third robe we're quite well covered it's it's very sufficiently formal and respectful and it would certainly save us all so much time and we wouldn't have to sweat so much and we wouldn't have to spend so much time we wouldn't have to waste so much time wringing out our robes and washing them we could be meditating doing something you know much more productive so this went on and on, and um, uh, finally, uh, actually, somebody somebody told him that he was um, that he was grumbling like this, and uh, he was uh, Ajahn Shah sort of called him in and sort of uh, put him in his place for this, and and he was 
you know, quite taken aback um, to being scolded by Ajahn Chah. But the point of the story is that he had this great insight that that the great suffering that he was experiencing, he was creating out of his resistance to the way things were, out of his idea that they should be otherwise, they should be different, we shouldn't have to go through all this. And what he discovered was that when he settled back and he, and he asked himself the question, can I bear this? Can I bear the heat or the stickiness or the, or the washing or whatever? That he always could. And there was a tremendous sense of liberation. Uh, I'm sure that maybe took a little bit of time to, to really unfold and, and become real. But um, this teaching of can I bear this has been one that's been so powerful for me you know, over the years. As I've, I've kept coming back to, the, to this story, thinking of him sweating through the robes and, and realizing that he could actually be with the sensations, the sensations of heat or stickiness or, or whatnot, were not the suffering. That was not the problem. The problem was the idea that it shouldn't be like that. And so it is that the Buddha teaches that the fear, the suffering that we experience is never in the present moment. It's always kind of around the present moment. In a way, it's never in the experience, but it's in our relationship to the ex- our experience. And the, and the release from this suffering is an aware and kind acceptance of how it is, a releasing of the constant craving to change things, to change how it is, and a settling back, this sense of non-clinging, resting back into the present, that that's, that's the peace that we're actually seeking for. However, many people I talk to, certainly myself, no matter how many Dharma talks I hear and agree to and think, yes, that's right, or or even say myself about, about this, I still find that there's a very persistent habit of the mind to think, if only things were different, then I would be happy. Then I would be at peace. Has anyone ever thought that? Yeah. <laughs> you know... Um, <laughs> it's it's really ironic to me to, to think how the, the fundamental teaching is suffering happens, suffering is the result of clinging, and peace is the result of non-clinging. And yet I still think that if I had the perfect set of circumstances, if I had if I could just get it together, if I could get my livelihood together, my relationship, my health, the perfect place to live, get the right combination of exercise, diet, organic food, yoga, therapy, right? If I could just get it all together, then if I had this exquisitely perfect set of conditions, then I could really not cling. 
right? Because that's where freedom comes from. The peace comes from not clinging. But I, I've got in my mind that I have to have the right set of cl- conditions to not cling to in order to be free. You know, Joseph Goldstein, um, teacher to, to many of us, um, has a nice little phrase that kind of encapsulates this. And he says, it doesn't matter to which you don't cling. It's very simple. You just have to unfold the kind of double negatives in that. But, but basically, it's, it's just kind of reiterating this sense that, that the peace doesn't come from our experience. Even the most exquisitely pleasant or pleasurable experience can be the source or can be a condition for great suffering if we cling to it. That the peace we seek is in our relationship to the experience. So, so all of this for me kind of is about taking refuge in the awareness of how things are right now. Settling back, allowing things to be, even when it, things seem to be falling apart around me, seem in the world, in my own personal life. I've had to, to practice quite a bit with this lately. I've, um, I've got some deadline pressure for the work I'm doing right now. My computer crashed and several other things all came together. And so I was trying to practice myself. Can I just be with it right now? And I, I just went outside, kind of in the middle of everything. I went outside the other day and sat on the grass. And I was just asking myself this question, well, how is it right now? And I tuned in and I felt the temperature and it was so pleasant. You know, I don't know how it was down here, but in Oakland it was sunny and warm, perfect. And the sky was blue, not a cloud. The grass was green and soft and there was a shady tree. Coming back to the moment, I realized, well, this is quite lovely, actually. And it was a really good contrast for me to see the tension that has been in my mind, had been in my mind, and how it actually is in this moment was okay. There's a a, a quotation, um, a saying from the the ancient Zen poet Basho. Um, He says, Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. So I'm not sure when I'll get to that level of equanimity with allowing things to be as they are, but I think it's it's a great... I, mean, I, can, I can imagine to some extent what, what the kind of freedom that, that that statement is arising from. A kind of unshakability uh, of rest, of ease, knowing just how complete and how true of a refuge the awareness of the present is. You know, even when his house and everything, all of the material things have burned away, burned down, that he has great, such great faith that he can rest in the present moment and just, oh, and there's the moon. So I think that's quite, it's something to aspire to. And of course, the other wing to this great bird of, an, of awakening, of liberation, is kindness or compassion. And without it, one 
one's experience is quite dry, can be can become quite intellectual and cold. Actually, however, on the on the deeper level, kindness or compassion is no different from from wisdom, and they they arise together when as one sees more clearly the true state of one's own heart and and those around us, the, the sense of um, friendliness and compassion uh, arises at the same time. Here's another poem. This one is by Rumi, the great Sufi mystic. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This is another statement coming from a very enlightened place, able to really see each of our experiences as this guest and see the potential freedom from that can that can arise from relating to each one with this sort of uh, kind of laughter at the door, this um, trust that everything arises and passes um, lawfully, and that it's not necessary or even uh, helpful to try to manipulate or control every aspect of our experience. That, that even when it seems like things have fallen apart, you've been cleared out by these, uh, this crowd, crowd of sorrows, that this, this clearing out might be an opening to a new sense of spaciousness, of ease, of a new relationship to the, our experience. But it's at times like these when things have been shaken apart, blown apart, burned down, shaken down. Times like this for me have been really valuable in retrospect. Certainly exceedingly painful to go through. Um, But these are the times that, that I've begun to learn something very important about myself. When everything else has fallen away, when when I'm curled up on a in a ball <laughs> on the floor, you know, with with grief or with fear or with loneliness or whatever it may be, it's a real crucible that that my in my experience has burned away all of these things that I thought I wanted, 
burned away these plans or hopes or things I was clinging to or or whatever it was. It, just the, the, the overwhelming evidence that I was not in control and that I could not make things the way I wanted them, that forced me to to let go and and to and burn those away and help me come back to, to this question, well, what is it that I most care about? What is my core intention? And as this process happened over and over, so sort of slowly, a sense of this, an answer to this question began to emerge. And I began to have some faith in this aspiration that was arising. And it, and it, was, it was very simple. And, and I imagine that, well, I have faith or I believe that, that this aspiration is very similar for, for all beings. And it's just an aspiration for, for happiness, for peace, for uh, a friendly heart, for uh, to love and be loved. It's a very wholesome place. And in my experience, the only way, or the deepest way at least, that I've learned about this is when everything else has, has fallen apart and I've been reduced to that. And so this sincere intention is something that I've begun to have faith in and it's, that has begun to become a refuge for me. And I sort of put it in the, this category of kindness or compassion because when I can come back to this place of sincere intention and of a knowing that this is really what's at the core of my being, it helps me have a sense of kindness to, my, to myself. Even when the, my personal judge is ferociously assailing me, even when, I've, when my mind is telling me that I've failed or that I'm not good enough or whatever, coming back to this place of refuge, of sincere intention, has been an incredible uh, refuge for me. And as I rest there, I can, I, know, I can know at some level, some very deep level, that I'm trying, that... I, that whatever I'm doing in my life, however confused I might be, that at some level it's trying to further this goal, this aspiration that, that I've seen to, to be one of goodness. I was reflecting quite a bit on this uh, during uh, a, the three-month retreat that I sat um, a couple of years ago. About 10 days into the uh, 84 days of uh, sitting, um, I injured my, my knee um, fairly seriously, um, and which was quite a surprise. And um, I've, up until that time, I'd had a little bit of knee problems when I was r- running cross country in high school, but really hadn't had any issues issue since then. And I had I, I realized how identified I'd become with a, with a healthy and strong body. And as the retreat was going, I was beginning to sit longer and longer periods. And 
um, I'm sure that there is some aspect of uh, of being pleased with myself for being able to do that. I was starting to rise, or just like, oh, this is getting comfortable, and and then this the shift happened, and um, I wasn't able to to sit cross-legged um, the rest of the retreat. I couldn't even sit in a chair. Um, I just had to sit um, with my legs in front of me and some support. And I, I wasn't able to do walking meditation for uh, most of the rest of the retreat. And the point of all this being um, that it was I was really uh, forced into a, a very challenging place. And so many things that I had counted on... Um, had been, uh, I wasn't able to do. I wasn't able to go outside. I was really looking forward to fall in New England, and um, for for many weeks I didn't get to spend much time outside, or or to go for a run now and then to kind of change the energy. But this this difficulty, which I'm sure you know, um, we've all had difficulties of this or much much greater intensity. But in the context of a retreat, I, I had a lot of time to reflect on, well, what was a true refuge? And to be shaken down to, to the core. And I, I know that I, it was still, the rest, I didn't, it, the rest of the retreat was still difficult. But I know that I learned something very important about refuge. And, and I had some wonderful moments where of, of equanimity, actually, even uh, in the midst of this, where um, I was, I, I could settle back into the present, and I could appreciate uh, sitting out on the porch and just um, appreciating the colors of the sky or the breeze, or um, appreciating the wholesomeness of the retreat and how all of these people were coming together and devoting so much of their life energy for to cultivate goodness in themselves and, and for the world. And that that, that 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 in that moment at least that, that was enough and that was that was a refuge, just coming back, being kind to myself, knowing my intention was good. I didn't ask for these difficulties and in fact th- these difficulties weren't actually preventing me from <coughs> from growing in the way that I was hoping. This is a pretty important point to start to get. Then it kind of relates to what I was saying earlier about how how often I have the sense that I need to have a certain set of conditions in order to become free, or even in order to grow in order to become free. I need to have like a quiet, un- uninterrupted, spacious meditation period every morning, or I need to have X amount of free time to go this or I need to have I need to be free from colds or I need to be free from aches and pains or anything like that um, my experience on the three-month retreat taught me that um, when several of the things that I thought I needed to have in order to have this optimal retreat experience in order to really get somewhere that even when those weren't available that there was still this growth that came through being able to settle back, rest in my intention, and be kind to my experience, and be kind to my, myself, knowing that I'm, I'm trying. There's another um, parable or story that I've found really useful 
Um, I've heard Gail tell this in, uh, several times. Um, it's a story of two people rowing their, their boats. Um, and you can just imagine the first person, they're gonna, they set out, they're going to row their boat across this lake. And this day is just exquisite. There's not a cloud in the sky. The lake is glassy, smooth. Gets in the boat. Oh, just a slight tailwind comes up, gliding across the, the lake. Easy, comfortable, feeling really good. And the rowers, quite naturally, thinking, "This is wonderful. Um, I love rowing. I'm really, you know, what? I'm really a great rower. You know, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to do this every morning." Gets across the lake, feeling. Gets out of the boat feeling great. Uh, maybe the next day, different rower, maybe the same rower, gets in the boat, and all of a sudden, you know, gets a little ways out there, the weather turns. Storm comes in, the wind picks up, choppy waves, you know, it gets dark, lightning, thunder, storm, rain. Every stroke is pure agony, you know, and the muscles are sore, and the progress is slow, if, if any. It takes hours to get across the lake. And then the thoughts are arising, well, this is horrible. This is terrible. I, I hate rowing. You know, uh, I'm a, I must be a terrible rower. I'm never going to do this again. I can't, you know, what was I thinking, right? Anyway, but the person persists and finally gets across to the other side of the lake. Well, then there's some interesting reflections here. Well, who was it that was really the better rower? Who was it that grew in strength or understanding? For whom will it be easier the next time? It's like we don't really know what's going on (laughs) with our lives. You know, we don't really know what we're learning or how we're growing in the situations. And I found that to be very, very helpful to remember as I'm going through periods that are are difficult, is that I don't know how I'm growing. I don't know what's going on. I don't know the ways that I'm growing stronger. And I don't have any control over what kind of weather I get. And the only thing I can really have any control over is my intention. And when I've been shaken down so, you know, so many times, I'm sure it'll happen many more times, but each time that I've known, that I've touched that place and I and I have some faith in my attention, that this is something I can rest with. That that this is something I have control over, and that this is something that is onward leading, that will take me where I'm hoping to go. Not necessarily in the time frame I have in mind, or in the way that I think it needs to unfold, but there's a faith that it is onward leading. So I offer these for your reflection.
So before we do um, a short sitting to close the evening, if anyone um, had anything to share um, in relation to this talk or your own experience of refuge or any questions about the practice, we could take a few minutes for that. Yes. Just want to say what you just talked about was so remarkably relevant and timely in my life, especially the concept of intention that I just talked to one child about today in relation to my other child, and uh, it's I've been able to, to do it in cases, and I'm trying to make it a general thing. It's just wonderful to face today. Mm-hmm. Well, um, why don't we um, just adjust any, do any posture adjustments that would be helpful? Stand up, sit down, stretch, change. And then we'll take another about 15 minute period for some silent practice. really is. You must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows 
and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Thank you, everyone.